0: it's kind of embracing decay and death as part of life. Human composting, I think, is a brilliant idea. I have said to my rather horrified family, I want, to be, I want you to put me on the compost heap at the end, and they were all like, Mom!
1: Welcome to My Garden, My Life, the podcast that inspires you to grow with your garden. I'm Sarah Layton, founder of Growthly and my mission is to inspire and support you to enhance your life and mental health by growing your ownership of that precious space outside your home. When we make space in our lives for ourselves, anything is possible. I share conversations with people who inspire me, who have a passion for their garden, plants or flowers which enhances their life, And I do this because I want to inspire you to get out there and give it a go. Gain confidence, make the changes you want to your garden and feel the joy that comes with taking ownership and action out there. Your garden, balcony, window boxes even, can literally change your life. My guest today is Jane Perrone, host of the popular On The Ledge podcast, which is all about houseplants. She's a journalist and passionate houseplant lover, obviously. And since I asked her to, I'll leave it to her to tell us more about herself. Hello, Jane. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Thank you so much for for joining me. Very excited to talk houseplants.
0: Always happy to talk about houseplants.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I could launch straight in, but let's just... Take a moment and I'll intro you and then you can add anything I've missed. Sure. So you're Jane Perrone and you're the host of the Legendary on the Ledge podcast.
0: Well, I, I like to think it's legendary, but I'm not so sure about that. It's been going for four years, so it has built up a bit of a following. But uh, yeah, we we try to be legendary anyway.
1: Well, I just, I wrote it and then I read it and I thought, oh, look what you've done. <laughs> and it's, and it's been, it's, your, your website says it's been downloaded nearly 2 million times. Maybe it's more now.
0: Yeah, it probably is more than that now. Yes. Yeah, so it's one of those, well, I guess like most gardening podcasts, there's a, what you call a long tail. So people tend to find the show and then go back and listen to every single episode, which to me sounds like an awful lot of my voice, but apparently people enjoy it. so.
1: I want to come back to your voice, actually, because I read on your blog about exposure therapy and how hard it had been to get to like your own voice. But we're not there yet. I'm going to finish the intro first. Sure. So you're a a journalist and a houseplant lover and a member of the RHS advisory board for houseplants and cut flowers. That's right. Yes. And a grower of weird veg. Yes. The weird veg. The weird veg. (laughs) Tell me about
0: the weird veg. Well. I don't have, I used to have an allotment. And in fact, I wrote a book about allotments back in 2007, but I don't have one anymore because I've got a decent sized garden, a smaller area of which is turned over to to growing vegetables. And my take on growing food is that there isn't a great deal of point in growing stuff that you can get at the supermarket readily. So I tend to grow things that I can't get at the supermarket and things that are easy. So I don't do a lot of vegetable sowing every year because most of the vegetables that I grow are perennial or at least semi-perennial. So um, I do grow tomatoes every year and chilies every year. But other than that, I tend to grow lots of things that can be used as substitutes for common props. So it's a lot of things like kale, perennial kales, and perennial onions of various kinds that you can use as substitutes for both bulb onions and spring onions. Didn't know about
1: those. That sounds, I guess that makes sense because of alliums.
0: Yeah, so the allium family is huge and there are so many things in it that are wonderful perennials that you can use in place of spring onions. So things like Welsh onion, which is a perennial onion that you can harvest the the leaves as you would do spring onions and you can let it bulb up and harvest the the bulb bit as well it produces these lovely big globe type flowers that bees love so that's a good one and then you also get oddities like the Egyptian walking onion which produces little bulbils on the end of the stems which then make the stem fall over and then that's where the walking name comes from because those little bulbils end up going into the soil and growing and you can pick those off and and use them in cooking. So there's a few different things that I use. Another one of my absolute favorites is called Good King Henry or Latin, wonderful Latin name, Chenopodium bonum henricum i think it is i always get that slightly wrong but it's 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 very good it's very good it's a relation of so it's chenopodium genus relation of the fat hen which is also edible which is a weed but is also edible and an ancient thing that people ancient peoples were eating but the good king henry was brought over to the uk as a pot herb by the romans i believe and it's kind of growing wild now but you can also grow it for cultivation and it is the most wonderful spinach substitute people make a big mistake though with good king henry in that if you just pick the leaves and eat them in a salad or put them in cooking they're very very bitter So my friend Alice Fowler taught me a trick, which is basically any bitter leaf, you can just get a really big bowl of heavily salted water. And I do mean heavily salted, like a tablespoon or two of salt in there. And you soak the leaves in that heavily salted water for at least an hour, if not two hours, then you rinse it off and the salt draws out all the bitterness and you get left with this incredible flavor. And they're very nutritious as well, the leaves of Good King Henry. So They're one of my favourite edibles. That's
1: very much like aubergine,
0: that idea of of drawing out the bitterness. Exactly, exactly. It's really really simple and it works for other bitter leaves as well. And the beauty of it is, it's just so low maintenance. You have to do nothing. They, They don't even really get attacked by pests very much. The perennial kales, you need to take a little bit more care with because they will get attacked by pigeons and also the caterpillars of the large white and small white butterflies but again really really easy and I've actually converted people to kale by giving them some perennial kale because it's you can just pick it when it's really young and soft and it's delicious.
1: That's interesting because I've got a kale plant that I just didn't pull up and it's fine.
0: Yeah we're oftentimes with vegetables made to think that they can only grow for a year but many vegetables will continue on like many kales and you can just keep them going and also chilies as well you know chilies will so if you get manage to get your chili to the end of the season and you've got somewhere frost free but cool that you can store it over winter you can often keep them going over the winter as well so yeah there's lots of uh there's lots of ways you
1: can cut out the amount of time you have to spend sewing it's such a brilliant i, I love the idea of the welsh onion as well the fact that it's Yeah, well, you've inspired me. I shall investigate them. (laughs) And the chenopodiums interesting because I did a a pictorial meadow, pictorial meadows meadow for some new beds last year. It's a bit of a story. We've got a garden that I can't do what I want to do with yet because we want to do some building on the house. And we've got to wait for conservation planning and we don't know whether we'll get it. You know, all of that. So the garden, I changed the garden to have new, I, I just broke up the lawn, really, which was a big lawn with new beds. But I don't want to plant them permanently yet because I don't know. So I've been doing the meadow thing. And I disturbed, I think in the process, Chenopodium, because according to Pictorial Meadows, they do not put that in their mix. And yet my meadow beds were full of it. So I think it would disturb the
0: seeds. That yeah, been- I, I would expect that to be the case because, you know, fat hen seeds are absolutely endemic in whenever you disturb soil that hasn't been disturbed for a while. Those seeds of the, of the fat hen chenopodium album will come to the surface and germinate. That's why you see a lot of it on wasteland and things, because it's a very, very persistent seed and a lot of seed is produced. And the seed actually was eaten by ancient peoples uh, as um, as a form of protein. But generally now it's the leaves that people forage for and eat as a spinach substitute. And it's, you know, you see it on sort of trendy gastropub menus as well. Uh, another Chenopodium that's great is Chenopodium giganteum, which is the another relative that is used as a spinach substitute. But it has these amazing uh, sort of bright pink uh, tinged leaves and that is also known as tree spinach and it does grow huge the stems you get these really substantial candy striped stems if you let it grow big you are really better off using it as a cut and come again plant because it does get massive but that's really colorful and once you've got that if you allow it to self-seed you've got it forever because it keeps coming up just like the uh the fat hen it's relative. So yeah they're a great they're a great group of plants and much maligned but actually they've been eaten by humans for a very long time. So it's fascinating <laughs> but I
1: don't really want fat hen in my meadow beds.
0: Well no. I mean I would definitely say that's the beauty of eating weeds is that you can just pull them out and you know they are quite easy to remove. But it is a pain to have it where you want to have flowers. I appreciate that. They can quickly take over.
1: It was a lot of it. So we'll see what happens this year. But I mean, i got it but fascinating. I might have to start eating it. I, ha- I hadn't been eating it, so we might have to start. <laughs> so you've been growing ever since you were a child. Yes, I mean, I've I've
0: always been interested in plants. I suppose probably in my 20s uh, when I was sort of moving around and as one tends to be distracted by other things, uh, that was probably my, my period where I wasn't doing so much gardening. But as soon as I had my own place, I really got back into gardening and got myself an allotment. And houseplants have been a constant throughout my life for something that I've been interested in growing.
1: And way before it was trendy, because of course they're so trendy now, houseplants. Yeah, I mean I was around the last time house
0: plants were trendy. That's how old I am. Uh yeah, I mean it's interesting well, why this... was that, then? Uh, well, I I would say that I mean, I was born in the, in the mid-70s, so I would say that that was sort of that period of when I was quite little, that houseplants were quite big. And then I think in the 80s, they kind of faded away. But yeah, I, I grew up raising plants and, and buying plants and experimenting with different cacti and succulents and things. And I loved doing that. It gave me great joy. And it wasn't something anyone told me to do. It was just something that was innate within me. So your family weren't particularly planty? Well, my dad was a self-taught gardener who definitely was into into growing and he still is. He was very much self-taught and was wasn't really sort of somebody who would be, you know, reading books about about gardening. He just sort of learned how to do it. I always remember him telling me that the very first time he tried to grow some seeds that he put. We lived in a place with very clay soil. And he said, oh, I just put the seeds in this very heavy clay soil in a pot in the shed and then I wrote to the seed company because I was very annoyed when they didn't come up <laughs> and so he kind of you know and they must have I think they then sent him back some information on sowing, and he sort of taught himself and so you know um I think I I probably took inspiration from him my um grandfather on on my mother's side was a huge hugely successful allotment keeper and he had five allotments and uh, but by the time by the time I knew him he was he was very elderly and he only had a few beefsteak tomatoes in the garden so I don't think I directly learned from him but perhaps it was in the genes. I think
1: it comes back as well my dad was a gardener but he was the sort of gardener that didn't really want the children to get involved it was his sort of escape from it (laughs) I can understand that I would say
0: that's probably the same with my children
1: (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, you know I collected it somehow anyway not so much later that I started actually finding my own passion for it but I think the seed must have been the seed must have been sown (laughs) yeah yeah I
0: think that's true I think it's true things that that do get absorbed by you as a child that you end up coming back to in later life when you do start getting interested in 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 growing
1: absolutely so tell me about your podcast. I'm really fascinated by this idea of not liking – you because you, you wrote that lovely blog about tips for podcasters. Yes, really yes. Listening to your own – I find that listening – I do always listen back, but I kind of do it with a, with a <laughs> quality. Um, <laughs> not because I don't like the sound of my own – I talk a lot, so I guess I do like the sound of my own voice, but tell me about that. Well, for me,
0: I mean, I, as a journalist for many, many years, I should really be used to the sound of my voice. Cause I've appeared, you know, I've done a lot of radio interviews for different things over the years before I was in, into, before I was a garden writer, I was a news journalist. So I did end up being, you know, doing news interviews for different things over the years, but I never got comfortable with the sound of my own voice. And I think having the podcast it just forces you to listen to yourself, and I quickly realised that actually I was getting lots of messages from people, particularly in America, where I've got lots of listeners saying, "We just love this. I love the sound of your voice." And I and I do remember when I was I studied in the U.S. for a couple of years, and I worked at the student radio station, and I remember then I could have been saying anything when I read the news because people just like the sound of my voice. So, so it's an interesting. One, I mean, I think you have to embrace you and your or everything about yourself, if you're going to put yourself out there as the host of a podcast, you have to be able to have confidence in yourself and say, this is me, this is what I sound like and take it or leave it. And so that's what I've tried to take on board. And I think also in four years of podcasting and doing lots of interviews like this for other podcasts, I've got much more skilled at, I mean, I still like you. I still listen back to my podcast and cringe, but I think I've got more skilled at speaking and making it sound interesting and so on. So yeah, don't be afraid of the sound of your own voice. I mean, I, there's very few podcasts that I won't listen to because somebody's got an irritating voice. So I think you, you start to associate the sound of somebody's voice with their podcast.
1: Yeah. So how did you stick with it? Cause that's the thing that I find that if something's really uncomfortable, it's hard to push through and keep going. And you have to want something very much, don't you, in order to put yourself through that.
0: And I think also you've you've kind of also got to get over yourself and say to yourself, <laughs> you know what? just nobody really care. I'm, I'm constantly saying this to my children. Like you're worried about what you look like, what you sound like. Probably the people that you're worrying about are not even looking or paying any attention to any of this. And if they are, who cares? Like just get over it and just do it because that's the only way you're going to move forward. Yeah. And uh, so I would just say, yeah, just try to fake it till you make it almost that you don't worry about these things because there's no Point in worrying about what other people are thinking of you just try to be your genuine self and you will that way that's how you build engagement is by being genuine and, and sometimes making yourself a little bit vulnerable as well
1: absolutely yeah and that's fascinating because that's it sounds as if that's what you you've said to yourself you know people aren't interested in you know they're not criticizing me they're either interested in what I've got to say or they're not and if they're not then they'll go away and they're not they're not my audience and if they are they I hang about and they won't mind how I sound. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, I think I'm quite lucky in that I'm,
0: I suppose I'm quite a relentless person. Like if I want to do something, I will just go ahead and do it. And I, i am not really that bothered about what other people, other people's opinions. I mean, as a child, I was quite a tomboy. And, you know, I remember, you know, like people quite often mistook me for a boy and I really didn't care. I was like, yeah, I'm comfortable in jeans and trainers and, but I don't, I mean, obviously this was in the seventies and eighties. So things were a little bit less um, accommodating than they are now. So, you know, I was never, I was never bothered by other people saying, Oh, you shouldn't be, why aren't you wearing pretty little dresses? I was just quite happy in my jeans and trainers because that's how I felt comfortable. So I think being comfortable in your own skin is a wonderful thing to be able to be. And I can't really give any tips on how to do that other than just You've just got to have a stalwart belief in yourself and then it kind of happens.
1: A little break in the conversation to tell you about my garden design and coaching business, Growthfully, which sponsors this podcast because I'm passionate about helping you harness the wellbeing potential of that precious space outside your home. Instead of looking out the window and wondering how to start, you'll feel supported and encouraged to gain confidence throughout a process that leaves you satisfied and nourished by your outdoor space. I offer a collaboration, sharing my skills with you through coaching and design packages in your garden or online, and I'd love to help you. So if this is something you could do with, Please visit www.growthly.co.uk to find out more and book your free discovery call. When we spoke, when we were sort of preparing for this, we talked about the cycle of life and what we, we learn from the garden. You said you were fascinated by death in the garden and its relationship to compost. Yeah, so this
0: is an interesting one. I think this is something that's come over me as the years have gone by. I did a really nice, well, when I worked for the Guardian, I, I wrote a piece. I think it was at least four or five years ago now about cherry blossom and the Japanese festival known as Hanami, which is the cherry blossom kind of viewing. And I had a really interesting conversation with the garden designer Sophie Walker because she was writing a book about Japanese gardening, and you know, she said to me. Jane, the thing about Japanese gardening is it's basically all about death. And I was like, what? But she said, you know, the the whole reason why blossom is so revered is that it's fragility and it's beauty. And that draws a parallel with us as human beings, that we are both beautiful and fragile and short-lived. And so the idea of looking at the blossom, it's not just about, oh, isn't it pretty? It's about saying, I need to come to terms with the fact that I am only going to have a certain number of seasons, and then I'm going to I, I'm going to end. And that kind of touched me profoundly at the time. In that I and I've read other things about about this as well. That that gardening is about understanding the cycle of life and recognizing. I do think quite often about this in terms of looking at a tree and saying, Well, I wonder how many more times I'm going to see that tree producing fruit every summer, or how many more times am I going to have a chance to you know, redo this garden in a different way. And this may sound really gloomy, but I think in a way what it does for me is it helps me to really focus and get immediate joy out of things rather than, oh no, look at that mud patch the dog's made. Oh no, that's gone wrong. Oh dear, the storms have brought down another fence panel. But just to actually get immediate joy from things that are beautiful and fleeting, but beautiful things that are in the garden or getting, picking a lovely fresh leaf from the garden for some salad and just enjoying that and enjoying the, the, the fact that it's very fleeting, but it's a lovely thing. So the comp where the compost comes into it is, is just that it's kind of the completion of the cycle. So, uh, you know, when stuff is finished in the garden, you can put it on the compost heap And you know that it's changed forever, but at the same time, it's going to go back into the garden and produce the next generation of lovely things. So it's kind of embracing decay and death as part of life.
1: Absolutely, and having just come off the memorial service to an amazing old woman in the village for an amazing old woman in the village on on Zoom just before, you know, listening to exactly that. Actually, what the what was he? I suppose a priest was saying about you know the ashes to ashes, dust to dust piece and this the soul we hold and then we let go of the body.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love the idea of uh, you know human composting. I think is a brilliant idea. I have said to my rather horrified family, I want to be. I want you to put me on the compost heap at the end, and they were all like. but um I love that idea of 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 human of humans kind of going back into the earth and as somebody who doesn't believe in an afterlife as such I I'm quite happy with that idea that I'm going to be you know contributing to the growth of some wonderful trees or plants at, at my end I think that's a lovely idea but you know it's that said I think, uh, you know, there's there's so much more to composting than just that. If, if that doesn't appeal to you as a, as a way of thinking about composting, there's a lot of other cool things about composting, which I love. Not least, you know, it's a wonderful little wildlife environment that you can poke around in. Also, just a wonderful way of reducing your carbon footprint in the garden. And it's good exercise as well. Getting out in the fresh air and turning your compost heap. There's nothing
1: better and the sense of achievement when you've put on all those scraps and you've added your kitchen stuff and your garden waste and then you come up with out with this lovely friable soft sweet smelling brown medium for growing in it.
0: yeah it's really it's wonderful and I think this is, it always really depresses me when people have a lovely garden, but no heap, because for me, it means that there's something fundamentally missing. And yeah, I love getting my hands in some fresh compost and, and get, get, that is a wonderful part of the, of the experience of, of digging up the good stuff and, and using it on the garden. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just think it's brilliant. And I'm sure, you know, as as scientists continue to delve into the benefits of gardening, we're coming up with more and more realisation that actually a lot of the microbes that are in the soil are actually good for us. You know, there's increasing research on those grounds. And I'm sure that getting your hands into soil is is a really good thing for anybody in life.
1: Well, absolutely. And you know, if I'm having a something's happened, and I'm having a stressful time or something, the first thing I do is get outside and be in the in the greenhouse and there's the soil in my greenhouse box waiting for me to put something on or sow a seed or something and just that tangible quality of of i I wear gloves i don't even i don't like having soil up my nails but nonetheless it still changes my mood instantly it's 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 magic (laughs) it's like magic yeah and I think a lot of
0: people have realized that over the pandemic that you know people who just have never spent long enough in their houses to actually go outside and spend time in the garden have suddenly realized the benefits of being outside and and that's really really powerful and you know it's great to have I think I think I read a press release from the RHS saying there were 3 million new gardeners because of covid which is wonderful so I really hope all those people you know don't put some fake lawn down and um, buy a patio heater and instead take up composting
1: and and if they if they haven't got compost yet go out and buy peat free rather than compost quality
0: indeed yes i mean that's a, another sort of battle that
1: you know it's it's kind of sad because
0: you know i remember sort of 10 20 years ago this was being talked about in it's been around yeah it's it's not a new thing and yet sort of it, it seems to be such we're so far behind where we should be on this and so now we have the real issue of okay if we're going to ban peat how do we go about making sure that there's enough peat-free compost to go around and actually composting is one of the central things i mean i remember getting emails from people when i was at the guardian saying oh what do i do with spent compost and i'm thinking spent compost isn't a thing, you know, like that's not a thing. Compost is just compost and you might need to add some nutrients and you might need to add some organic matter, but you can just keep using it. It's fine. And so it's a sort of a re-education process as well about teaching people how to use, how to make and use things like leaf mold and, you know, mulches and homemade compost
1: to cut down the amount of stuff they have to buy in. Absolutely. And I went into my local garden centre the other day because I actually needed compost looking for peat free. I ended up buying grow bags because that was the only thing that they had, which was peat free. But the guy that I was talking to, and I'm quite impassioned about this, and I said to him, you know, how come you've got all these piles of non, you know, peat filled compost when there's hardly? And he said, oh, it's much better for growing in. I actually felt like it was important to speak to the people who run the garden centres. Say, actually, that's not true. Yeah, I mean, the 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 difficulty is again that that I think there have
0: been lots of very um, variable peat-free compost out there on the market, and a lot of the cheaper ones are not have been historically not very good. I think that's changing, and I think people, you know, gardeners are nothing if not. Um, conservative with a small c and so lots of people say well I you this is what I've always used and this is what I'm going to use and it takes a, a learning curve for them to appreciate that actually there's many reasons not to be using peat and actually there are really good quality peat-free compost and yes you will have to pay more but it will go further and it will stick around like you
1: can reuse it yes yes I've got my my tomato pots are full of last year's What's the company called with the sheep compost? Oh, Dalefoot, is it? Dalefoot, yes, but I won't be wasting it. You know, I'll be, I'm using it for other things. It's just probably not quite right for tomatoes again, but it's perfectly good for other things. So it just can be recycled and recycled and recycled. Yeah. Before we, I can see we're getting sort of close to our time, but I think before before we finish, I really ought to ask you a bit about houseplants. (laughs) Sure. So what is the plant you are most delighted with that you currently have?
0: Oh, that's such a hard question. I mean, there's it changes on a day-to-day basis because there's always something happening and something that's that's coming up and changing my view. I would say right now, uh, it's probably my lace flower, which is Apisia cupriata, which is a member of the Gesneriad family, also home to species like the African Violet and the Cape Primrose. But this is a trailing Gesneriad with little red flowers and coppery, silvery foliage. And it really defies the odds, this plant, because it's unusually planted in a pot with no drainage. And it just looks wonderful and is really easy to grow. And it just brings me joy
1: every time I look at it so that's the plant that I'm enjoying today and if it's easy to grow I mean I think that's the whole thing about houseplants isn't it you can spend your life looking after them if you have a big collection and you go for the ones that aren't that easy Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, there's
0: always something that I know I should be doing with my plants and plants that need desperately need repotting. And particularly this year with the challenges of homeschooling, it's been apparent that I've got more plants than I can properly look after. So I have had to sort of downsize a little bit, but I get so much tremendous joy out of looking after them that, and obviously making a podcast about houseplants, it means that you know, at the end of every interview with an expert on a particular type of plant, I want to have that plant. (laughs) So it's tricky. But as I've as I've got older, I've started to be a bit more selective. And now I don't just go and, you know, get one of everything because I've realized that there's certain things that grow well for me and that I like and that I know about. And so I try to be a little bit more selective these days.
1: Yes, because it's really disappointing, isn't it? When there are things that you just can't make work. I, you know, I I've, I've got a very select collection of house plants because I know which ones I know how to look after really and I live in quite a dark house because it's a set of 15th century cottage. It's quite dark. <laughs> so there's only certain ones. In fact, I was going to ask you what your favorite house for deep shade is. I'm really putting you on the spot.
0: Uh, I do love aspidistras. I think they are really amazing plants. And, uh, you know, they're not going to set the world on fire in terms of their looks, but they are just so dependable and so good in deep shade that you can just have a plant that literally will last for decades, planted, you know, sat in a dark corner. They are great. I mean, I think I've just been writing a column actually for my RHS, the garden magazine house plant column. And I've just been writing about the Chinese evergreens, aglaonema, which are very good for shade Uh, they don't like drafts which may be a problem if your if your old house is is drafty but they are very good for lower light conditions provided that you don't choose one of the very highly variegated cultivars that are now being sold if you find a more plain green one Chinese evergreens are really good for those kind of conditions and really easy so they're worthwhile. Uh, people always suggest snake plants, but I don't grow snake, snake plants in shade. Sansevierias, they will they will sit in shade, but they'll just do nothing and they won't be very happy. I would say that they do much better in a nice, uh, bright or sunny, sunny window. What else? Is there anything else I'd recommend for deep shade? I mean, the other thing I always say to people is, if you've got a lighter area in your house, what you can do is you can get two or three plants of the same the same specimen basically in two or three different pots and you can just rotate those plants in and out of the shady area so that they're only there for a month or two and then they get some time in the light and that way you can have a a sort of keep keep the plant there without a plant having to suffer too much if it's really dark
1: yeah that's a really good idea and my next question is about my zz plant oh yes which I have two, actually. One's the dark purpley green variety, and then the other is a a normal green. And when I first got the normal green one, I watered it more regularly than it wanted. Should we put it like that? More sort of average pattern. And now I'd say it's probably three months, maybe two since I've watered it. And I'm looking at it and thinking, how on earth am I going to know when the right moment to water you is? because last time it
0: had <laughs> yellow leaves when i watered it yeah it, it's <laughs> it's a interesting plant this one it comes from east africa and it grows it's a rhizomatous plant so it's got these yes. really big rhizomes so that's why it can go a really long time without being watered because it just stores so much energy in those rhizomes and so much water i would say you need to get your finger down in among those rhizomes and only really water when the soil around Not just on the surface, but around those rhizomes is quite dry. And when you do water, give it a really good soak. Like, just don't sprinkle a bit of water on the surface, but put put it in a a bucket and let it properly soak for half an hour. Then let let it drain away. So it's better to do that, just because, like with containers in the garden, you know, if you just sprinkle a little bit of water on top, the roots tend to to go up rather than down. If you give them a good soak, then they're going to they're going to be nice and moist and then they're gradually going to dry out and the plant's generally happier that way so I would say yeah that's what I would recommend but yeah you're much better off erring on the side of too little moisture than too much
1: yes that's what I thought and I did wonder if there would be a point at which those sort of fleshy stems the rhizomes actually get a little bit wrinkled or something that you can tell it hasn't happened yet no I mean you've
0: could definitely push the boundaries with that plant it is one of the most tough plants that you can get and it will take an awful lot of drought before it starts showing any signs which is why it's a very popular office plant but at the same time you need to you're going to get some better growth out of it and it will grow quite vigorously if it's if it's allowed to to get the right level of moisture so yeah i mean the other thing you can do if it's in a plastic pot as opposed to in a Terracotta pot is you can just lift up the pot, and when it feels light, then you know that it's drying out. Oh, I'm sure it's dry. I'm sure it is, but I'm just nervous to water it. Yeah, well, the trouble the trouble is also overwatering is a lot harder to. Once you've overwatered a plant, it's actually a lot harder to to make it recover than if you've underwatered because the the kind of wilting and stuff that you get from overwatering oftentimes is just not going to go away it just the per plant is permanently damaged so that's the other thing to be aware of
1: oh well that has been a fantastic little romp through house plants and all sorts of things <laughs> <laughs> thank you very very much jane
0: my pleasure and as i said before it's always a delight to talk about house plants
1: I love chatting with Jane and as usual links to anything we mentioned are on my website www.growthfully.co.uk and you can find us both on Instagram Jane is at j.l.perone and I'm at growthfully Jane's podcast is on the ledge and her website is www.janeperone.com and a request if you love the podcast and people often tell me they do Please take a moment to subscribe if you haven't already and add a review wherever you listen. It's a cliche now, but it does help other people find it. And it's also really good for my self-esteem. Thank you.